0: The Old Pilot's Plane Tales Flying Over Christmas Waiting for the arrival of those December flying rosters was always a tense time. Those with big family gatherings, always anxious to ensure they're at home with their loved ones, whilst the more carefree crew with fewer ties might want to be down route somewhere exotic, knowing that a bevy of partygoers would be flying with them. Christmas has always been a time of celebration, even before Christians associated it with the birth of Jesus. In Neolithic times, those who built Stonehenge would wait for the arrival of the midwinter solstice, a few days before our Christmas, when the sun would have originally set between the two uprights of the tallest trilithon at the head of the Sarsen horseshoe and dropped onto the altar stone placed across the solstice axis. This would be marked by great feasts with animals driven hundreds of miles to provide the vast quantities of pork, beef, fermented milk and cheese they wanted. Much barley beer would be consumed from decorated mugs, much like the 500th APG show. The Romans were also prone to having a good time with five days of feasting, called the Saturnalia, when the normal rules of society were turned around so that slaves were served at table by their masters and soldiers by their officers, a tradition that survives in some military forces to this very day. The everyday diet would be spiced up with figs, dates, pine nuts, snails and fattened dormice. Medieval Britain saw a full twelve days of celebration, which reached a crescendo on the twelfth night, when presents were exchanged. These celebrations commemorated Christ's birth, and the name Christmas, Christ's Mass, is first recorded in England in 1038. It was a mishmash of traditions that came from the Roman Saturnalia, and the midwinter feast of Yule, which included keeping the Yule log burning throughout the season. Houses were decorated with evergreens, and rich food washed down with mulled braggart, an extra strong ale spiced with honey and cinnamon, and spiked with brandy. Rough games would be played, the tamest of which was hot cockles where blindfolded victims had to guess who'd slapped them from behind. If the guess was right, the slapper became the slappy. Many scholars think it's a mistake to claim that our modern Christmas comes directly from pre-Christian paganism, and neither is Christmas a modern creation. Early Christians had an interest in pagan traditions, but there was little attention given to celebrating birthdays, and the Bible has no reference to when Jesus was born. It wasn't until the 4th century that church leaders in Rome embraced the holiday, and partly as Nisombom believed, because people had turned away from thinking of Jesus as a man. Celebrating his birth became a way to remember him, starting life as a humble human. It was the Victorians who began many of the traditions we now associate with Christmas. Prince Albert bought the idea of a Christmas tree from his native Germany, and when the royal family began giving gifts on Christmas Day, everyone did. The Victorian period gave birth to Christmas cards, crackers, eating turkey instead of goose, and Christmas pudding. Santa Claus, Father Christmas, St Nicholas, Kris Kringle, etc. were popularised in the United States, but can be traced back to a 4th century Greek Christian bishop of Myra, now part of Turkey. St Nicholas was famous for giving gifts to the poor. Father Christmas dates to the 16th century, when, during the reign of Henry VIII, he was depicted as a large man in a green or scarlet robe lined with fur. So if you think it was Coca-Cola's idea, you'd be sadly mistaken. In Europe, he might be known as Sinterklaas, de Kerstmann, Belsnickel, or Pierre Noel, to name just a few with publicists like Clement Clark moore who wrote the poem that became Twas the Night Before Christmas, the stories of Charles Dickens and the cartoons of Thomas Nast. Our modern vision of Christmas has as much to do with the promotions of department stores and shopping malls and the popularity of movies like Miracle on 34th Street as anything else. The idea of Santa and his sleigh propelled by flying reindeer – probably originates with the aforementioned poem by Clement Moore. But in the past, he rode a horse, or in his original Norse and Germanic persona, as the god Thor, was pulled by flying goats. I began this tale by thinking back to the arrival of the Christmas Flying Roster. But I know of one crew who flew over Christmas with great excitement. At least I believe so. Their names were Frank Borman... James Lovell and William Anders, the crew of the Apollo 8 space mission. Apollo 8 was the most groundbreaking mission that NASA flew, excepting the first landing on the surface of the moon, of course. It was quite early on that the decision was made to achieve a moon landing with a specialised spacecraft, which gave Apollo three primary components. The command module was the tin can on top, Underneath was the service module, providing the command module with propulsion, electrical power, oxygen and water, etc. And finally, a two-part lunar module, which would affect the landing. There would be three uncrewed launches of the Saturn rocket into Earth orbit, which would test the launch vehicle and in stages the various modules that would be used. This was due to be followed by four crewed missions. Apollo 7, 8, and 9 would conduct tests in various Earth orbits before a crew would be sent to orbit the Moon in Apollo 10. This would be followed in turn by the first attempt at a landing. Then there followed the tragedy of what has now been named Apollo 1 when a fire during a launch pad test killed Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. Flights were delayed by 20 months while NASA addressed the failings that had led to the disaster. Even with a collection of the world's most capable pilots and engineers, things were bound to go a little wrong at times, and when the missions returned, it was a tense time. Apollo 7 launched and was a complete success. There was, however, time to be made up, And when the Apollo 8's lunar module arrived at Kennedy Space Center, it had over a hundred significant faults. It was never going to be ready on time, and that was a problem. Following the original seven-step plan was no longer an option, but since the next command and service modules were only three months away, it was proposed that the intermediate missions be cancelled and Apollo Eight only the second crewed mission, be sent to orbit the moon. It was a vital and difficult decision, but almost every senior NASA manager agreed it could be done. Eventually, James Webb, the NASA administrator, agreed. The change of mission required a change of crew, and ultimately a swap of spacecraft. When the dust had settled, Frank Borman was the commander, James Lovell, the replacement for Michael Collins who damaged his back, as command module pilot, and William Anders, the lunar module pilot, even though their lunar module was a boilerplate dummy. The pressure the team were under was immense. Russia had already flown some tortoises in a loop around the moon, Surely they were now preparing to send cosmonauts on a similar mission, and the Apollo crew had only sixteen weeks to prepare for the launch, two or three months less time than normal. They now had a completely different set of mission objectives, and they were going to be the first to launch on the Saturn V rocket. However, in typical astronaut fashion, they buckled down to make sure their mission was a success. The task ahead of them was substantial. They were going to be the first to attempt to fly a crewed spacecraft out of low Earth orbit and then the first to navigate outer space to reach another astronomical object and then insert themselves into orbit around it. By December the 18th, three days before launch, testing was completed particularly on the modifications to cure the Pogo oscillations, ruptured fuel lines and multiple engine failures that had plagued earlier Saturn rockets. The crew wanted to name the spacecraft, but since Gus Grissom had called his Gemini capsule Molly Brown, NASA refused. Had they relented, it would have been called Columbiad after the name Jules Verne gave his giant cannon in the novel From the Earth to the Moon. Three, two, on December the 21st, one, zero, Apollo 8
1: launched. Off. Off.
0: On reaching Earth orbit, the third stage remained in place to give them the translunar injection burn that would send them out into the void towards their distant target. It was a tense moment. The last time this had been attempted was on an unmanned mission and the rocket had failed to ignite. Two hours, 27 minutes, and 22 seconds after launch, they were given go for TLI burn. The engine ignited perfectly, and over the next five minutes, they accelerated from 7,600 to 10,800 metres per second, about 24,200 miles an hour. As the earth fell away behind them, they jettisoned the third stage and swung the command service module around to view their planet. They looked back on the entirety of the earth, the first humans ever to do so. Many firsts would be achieved by Apollo 8, as this was truly a voyage of discovery. As they became the first to cross the Van Allen radiation belts, they now became human guinea pigs, wearing radiation dosimeters to measure the cumulative radiation that they would receive during their long journey. In the case of navigation failures, Lovell took star shots through a sextant built into the spacecraft, like mariners had centuries before. But apart from short course correction burns, there wasn't much to do except routine checks and to try to sleep. They gave a short TV broadcast and tried to show people of the Earth what their planet looked like, but sadly it was just a bright blob in the window. Then Borman began to feel unwell. He vomited twice and had a bout of diarrhoea, which left the spacecraft full of small globules of vomit and faeces. They cleaned up as best they could, but it wasn't a long-term problem. We now know that he had suffered from Space Adaption Syndrome, which affects about a third of all astronauts and is a form of motion sickness. After 55 hours, another invisible first passed them, when they left the influence of Earth's gravity as the moon's gravitational force became stronger. Then it came time to slow, so that they would reduce the distance they would pass the moon down to 71.7 miles. Their single engine burned for exactly 11 seconds, And as the moon began to fill their windows, they contemplated their next burn for lunar orbit insertion, which would occur behind the moon. With a call of, see you on the other side, they achieved another first as their radio went silent. The crew checked and double-checked every switch, and then, 69 hours, 8 minutes and 16 seconds into the mission, they began a four-minute seven-second burn that would trap them in the gravitational pull of the moon. Mission control waited. If the burn was too short, they would appear early, too long, and they would be late. Right on time, the radio blackout ended, and they listened as Lovell described the surface beneath them. Gray beach sand, not much contrast, terraced crater walls and the like. The crew had cameras to record the surface for future landings, and by the end of the mission, they had taken over 800 high-definition stills and 700 feet of 16mm cine-camera film. When the Apollo spacecraft came out from behind the moon for the fourth time, the crew got to see their first Earth rise. Anders spotted it first and called to the rest as they scrambled to get a view— he quickly changed to a colour film and then took a stunning photograph, acclaimed by Time magazine as one of its hundred photos of the century. they had hardly slept for three days and were suffering, so Borman ordered everyone to take a turn at sleeping. The cameras were set on automatic and they took turns to close their eyes. It was Christmas Eve and they had rounded the moon for the ninth time, when it came time for another transmission, for the eager audience back on earth. They each gave their impressions of this desolate place, with Borman describing it as a vast, lonely, forbidding expanse of nothing. Talking to a quarter of the world's population, 1,200 journalists who were covering the mission live, with the BBC's coverage alone reaching 54 countries in 15 different languages, they gave their parting message, a Bible reading from the book of Genesis. A controversial decision that would not be allowed on future missions, but it was done with the expectation that it would resonate with as many people as possible, that it wouldn't just be a message for Christians on Christmas Eve.
1: We are now approaching lunar sunrise, and for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together under one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth.
0: Their work done, it was time to return home. This involved another burn that started behind the moon out of contact with Capcom. When telemetry restarted as they emerged from the far side, Lovell announced that there really was a Santa Claus, to which Ken Mattingly replied that they were the best ones to know. It was Christmas Day, and they were on their way home. They opened their food locker to find that Dick Slayton had included a real turkey dinner with stuffing, the same pack that was given to the troops in Vietnam, and three miniature bottles of brandy, which Borman immediately ordered would remain unopened until after they'd landed. Their recovery back to earth was textbook and apart from 45 minutes upside down in the Pacific Ocean, while suffering from a 10-foot swell, uneventful. The success of this mission that had leapfrogged the Apollo program back into the race for the moon was unrivaled, and has been confidently described as the most historically significant of all the Apollo missions. So as you tuck into your Christmas turkey... Spare a thought for those brave Americans who ate theirs so far from home. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com